0: Turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in preparation for our new series in the book of Deuteronomy, which begins today. First Corinthians chapter 10, and then we'll read the first eight verses of Deuteronomy chapter 1. Let us then give our attention to the Word of God as it comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And now we turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter one. Moses writes by the Spirit of God. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness in the Araba opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dezahab it is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir in Kadesh Barnea to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edrei, Across the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law saying the Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb saying you stayed long enough at this mountain turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the sea coast the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon As far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See? I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. Amen. Today we do begin a new preaching series in this marvelous Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Now, in order to help us orient our thinking in a new study like this, to remind us of where Deuteronomy puts us in this great onward sweep of redemption history, I want to use an analogy. I want to use a comparison. This comparison comes from the field of construction and architecture. Because, after all, the church is a temple, isn't it? The church is being built. It's the Lord's house. It's built by grace of living stones. So, looking at our place in history as we come to Deuteronomy, if the book of Genesis... And that age of the patriarchs that we've been looking at, if the book of Genesis first swept away the debris of worldwide paganism and began to clear the ground of history for God's great work of redeeming sinners, and then if the ministry of Moses and Aaron, beginning with the book of Exodus, dug deep and lay the footer, of the church by outlining for us God's plan of redemption to, re- to redeem a particular people for himself by means of a Passover lamb, then we might consider this book of Deuteronomy to be the covenantal foundation of that great house of which Jesus Christ is builder and Lord. This is the foundation Deuteronomy lays the foundation. So we're starting something new today that really isn't completely new. Like all the rest of scripture, Deuteronomy builds on what went before it. And although it's 35 centuries old now, this book of Deuteronomy richly rewards anyone who begins to mine the treasures that are to be found in it. My modest goal today, as we begin, is threefold. First of all, I'd like to answer the question, why? Why study Deuteronomy and why now? Then, secondly, I want very briefly to introduce you to the book. I want, you, I want to introduce you to something of the structure of the book, its content, and some of the recurring themes that we find in it, very briefly. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, I hope by doing this to get you excited about it. People naturally respond to the Word of God in different ways, and Jesus said as much, didn't he, in his parable of the soils and the sower. To some people, the Word of God and the law of God in particular. To some people, it's a closed book. It's just a dry, old book gathering dust up there on the shelf. It's a piece of pious furniture in a uh, household, but unendurable, practically unendurable, actually to crack open and read. That's the way the word of God and the law of God in particular is received by some people. To us in Reformed churches, the Bible's a very good book. It is the best of books. It is the inspired and infallible Word of God. It is without error, as the Holy Spirit first breathed it into such spokesmen as Moses and the prophets and the apostles. The Bible, therefore, is to us the very touchstone of orthodoxy. We respect the Bible's rightful authority over us. But even admitting that much at an intellectual level, a theological level, this Bible hasn't necessarily claimed our hearts as certainly as it did that of the Lord Jesus Christ. More than anyone else who has ever lived, he absolutely loved this book. He loved it. Its brightness blazed in his heart every day. He was drawing from it all the time in his teaching and in his living. And I would say Deuteronomy in particular. Deuteronomy in particular. Deuteronomy was virtually the syllabus that Jesus used in his daily teaching on the kingdom of God. This is how we ought to live. And why? It's found in Deuteronomy. Well, that's how people think about the word of God, the law of God, and Deuteronomy. But what about you? The law of God speaks to you, certainly. But does it whisper sweet things in your ear? Does the law of God sing to you? Does it make you want to sing? As you, the Reformed Christian... Read God's law. You give your assent to the truth of it, certainly. You may even see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ splashed across its pages. But does the romance of true biblical faith and love, nurtured by the word of God, does that inflame and engulf you? Are you able to sing with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my study all the day. It makes me wiser than my foes. Its precepts with me stay. That all-consuming love for God's law became the very theme song of Jesus' own heart and ministry. Sad fact is that many people don't Love this book as he did. Don't hunger for it, day by day, moment by moment. Even people in Reformed churches don't, necessarily. Covenant is, to them, just a theological word. It's just a concept meant for understanding theology that is done out here at arm's length. But to them, it's not life itself. At least it's hard for them to see the covenant that way. Deuteronomy reminds us again and again that God's covenant relationship with his church under both testaments, old and new. This vital covenantal union with the living God is our life. It's our only life. It's also our liberty and our health and our prosperity and our security. In fact, this covenant is everything you've ever longed for in life but failed to find anywhere else. This covenant of grace, rightly understood even under its Mosaic administration, the Old Testament, is life. And by this covenantal arrangement, each of us has a solemn duty. It's stated right here on the pages of the Old Testament. Choose life. Choose life. Walk this way, not your own way. The God who first created us and then graciously redeemed us and to whom, therefore, we rightly belong twice over, This living and true God of the covenant knows our deepest needs and he meets them only within the relational framework of the covenant that's described here in Deuteronomy. After the age of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there followed several centuries, didn't they? Centuries when the entire Old Testament church languished as slaves in Egypt, in our reading of God's law, we are just entering into that section of the book of Genesis. When our fathers were chained to the service of gods, so called, that couldn't see, couldn't hear, couldn't act on their behalf, they were chained to dumb idols. They were chained to a nation that served. Dumb idols. But no more. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as he promised, brought our fathers out of bondage and across the howling wilderness and into that good land by the hand of a mediator, foreshadowing, of course, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Deuteronomy celebrates the Christian life of true freedom by spelling out for us again what true freedom is. It is a life lived in covenant. In covenant with the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A life lived in covenant with him. So are you excited? This is about our life. Our liberty. This book points our way to happiness. This is what it's all about. So, why study Deuteronomy? Well, first and most obviously, the first reason we still study Deuteronomy is that the Word of God, like Mount Everest waiting to be climbed, we study it because it's there. Because it's there. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. The church that skips over the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, the church that skips lightly over that, that thinks, well, Jesus fulfilled all of that, so what we really need to focus on is Jesus, not Moses. The church that thinks that way probably doesn't yet have the depth of understanding it should have about Jesus. If you want to understand the life and ministry of Jesus, if you want to understand who he is, if you want to understand what he came to do and what he actually did, the place to begin is with the law of God. The law that he himself issued, that he himself knew intimately, the law that he loved wholeheartedly, the law that he then kept for us perfectly, kept on our behalf. He himself said, whoever does and teaches these things shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You'll find those words in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. And so that's one very good reason to teach and learn and do them. Simply stated, it is the word of God. A second reason to study Deuteronomy, as I mentioned, this is the foundation of everything else that follows. Not only are you going to have a very imperfect grasp Of Jesus, if you don't know Deuteronomy, you'll also end up with a very poor grasp of the prophets and the Psalms and the whole New Testament. Covenant revelation is just that way. It unfolds. It opens gradually. It all builds on what went before. Returning to that construction metaphor that I used earlier. Um, If you want to build a house, you don't start with a roof because you happen to feel like roofing that day. No, you start with the footer and then you lay a good foundation and from there you build upwards. Don't skip the footer. Don't take shortcuts on the foundation. For example, would anyone really be able to explain the exodus from Egypt if they didn't have the covenant promises that God had made to Abraham more than 400 years earlier? If we didn't have those promises much, much earlier, the exodus might look just like any other political or economic or uh, Whatever might motivate a migration, it might appear that way until you understand what went before. And neither can we understand the subsequent history of Israel, any of it, until we have a firm grasp on this book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so if you want to learn to play the game of basketball, you want to play basketball, don't skip the part about learning the rules of the game. Because without rules, you have what looks like any number of people just trying to get their hands on the ball, just fighting to get the ball. Without rules, you don't have a game. You have anarchy. Well, The prophets throughout Israel's history for a thousand years were essentially God's referees. They were calling the players back to the rules. They were calling the fouls. They were applying the appropriate penalties. When you look at the promised blessings for covenant obedience and the promised curses for covenant breaking that are found in the book of Deuteronomy, And then you take a retrospective look back across Israel's history and experience as a nation, you realize it had all been spelled out for them beforehand. Right here in this book of Deuteronomy, here are the rules you broke, Israel. Here are the penalties. So in Deuteronomy, we have in general outline the future history of the covenant-breaking people of God. A sad history. A history played out in the rest of the Old Testament and on into the New. Now what I'm implying here, and what I'll say outright, is that neither prosperity nor judgment ever happened or ever happens to Israel or any other nation by mere chance. Neither a nation's freedom nor its enslavement, its affluence or its bankruptcy, its life or its death. Not once, all through all down through history, not once could God's people ever complain rightly saying poor, poor, pitiful me. I'm the chosen people and yet I'm always under the twisting, he- twisting heel of the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Chaldeans or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. God's treating us unfairly. No. It's always been perfectly fairly or better than fairly because he's faithful to his covenant. He deals with us according to the rules, according to the explicit terms of his covenant with his holy nation, the church, this covenant of Deuteronomy. Jesus kept it and keeping it is life. Breaking it means Loss and servitude and exile and death. A third reason for studying this book is that it presents God's covenant of grace just as clearly and comprehensively as any other single book of the Old Testament. It presents God's covenant of grace as clearly and comprehensively as any other Old Testament book. Even its literary structure is that of an ancient Middle Eastern covenant that kings would make with one another. From its preamble and historical prologue here in the first four chapters on through its covenant stipulations beginning, of course, in the fifth chapter, the blessings for covenant loyalty, the curses for covenant disobedience, covenant breaking. It even has, in the latter part of it, the instructions for the final disposition of the document. It's all here in Deuteronomy. But let's not skip over the gracious revelation of God that puts meat on the bones of that skeleton that covenantal skeleton. He reminds us of something that we are prone to forget if we let ourselves fall into an easy dichotomy between law and grace, as unfortunately many Christians do. Deuteronomy is constantly reminding us that God's law is spiritual, that it's by grace alone that he even gave it. First, we should remember that on eagles' wings and by sheer grace he brought us out of the iron furnace in Egypt. That preceded, that deliverance preceded the giving of the law. Only after that stunning act of sheer grace, the Passover lamb and the exodus, only after that did he give us his law. Covenant life, rightly understood, even under the Old Testament, wasn't legalistic. but it was decidedly legal. The believer's life and the nation that God is pleased to bless has distinct legal boundaries. Covenant life begins with the sovereign work of God's word and spirit inwardly on the sinner's broken heart, and only then does it work its way outward into our loving behavior toward God and neighbor. He works first, then we respond. But that inward work of the Spirit necessarily works itself out into the lives of men and societies. Now we're going to learn as we go that Deuteronomy actually adds very little to the corpus of law that's already present in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. It's not so much an addition to God's law as it is a clarification and application of God's law to a new generation that's facing a new national situation. It is not so much a second law as the English name Deuteronomy might lead you to believe. The Jewish rabbis called this book Mishneh HaTorah, a copy of the law, a repetition of it. When it takes place, what we have is a new generation that's ready to say goodbye to Moses. Moses is passing away, Moses is dying. And so he reviews with them, before he dies, he reviews that old law received at Sinai in a new place. For the benefit of a people who are facing a new set of life challenges. The law hasn't changed, but the generation has. And it's in this sense, it's a reminder incidentally, that God's law isn't just for the Levitical experts. The law of God, as we're going to see, the law of God is for everyone to hear, everyone to understand, and apply for everyone's blessing and happiness. Deuteronomy is for all the people of God. It is the law of God, we might say, for the common man. That's Deuteronomy. Why study Deuteronomy? A fourth reason is that it was of such special use to our Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry. For one thing, as we've already seen, it helped define what his ministry would be. He came as it was written of him. He's not only the seed of the woman coming in the fullness of time to crush the serpent's head, as we read in Genesis. He's not only the Passover lamb of Exodus, He's not only the Levitical atonement or the life-imparting bronze serpent raised up in numbers. He is all of that. The Lord Jesus is all of that. But he's far, far more. He's also that coming king. The Lord God would raise up from among his brethren, foretold in Deuteronomy 17. He's that coming prophet like unto Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18. And when in the fullness of time he actually came, prophet, priest, and king, born of a woman, born under the law, he came with Deuteronomy in his heart and on his lips. With lines taken from Deuteronomy, Jesus foiled every last temptation the devil offered him in the wilderness. Did you know that? It is written, he said. Written where? Written in Deuteronomy. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Our Savior was so thoroughly immersed in this book that when he came into the world, he came speaking the words of the 40th Psalm. Indeed, those were his own words long before he ever lent the words of the 40th Psalm to David. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God. Thy laws within my heart, immersed from childhood, In the synagogue of Nazareth, immersed in the teachings of Deuteronomy, our Lord Jesus Christ preached his first sermon on the mount. And you remember the constant refrain of that particular sermon? You have heard that it was said. And of course, it was said in Deuteronomy. All right, then, it's the word of God, and therefore it is worth our study. It's foundational, it's covenantal, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself loved and used this book. All very good reasons to study it. But why now? Why now? In part, it's because if you sense the flow of history and our place in it, as I do, You may perceive that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ seems to be at something of a tipping point. Now, maybe we always are. Maybe every generation of the Lord's church is. But as we see, as we look around our own church here, the year of the Lord 2023, we see children and young people in need of the Christ that this book portrays and presents. And friends, Deuteronomy is very much a Bible book for children. It is a Bible book for the young. As the children of Israel assemble on the plain of Moab, on the east bank of the Jordan River, facing west, poised to cross over the river into the good land, The promised land opposite Jericho. Moses stands there before them as a vigorous, clear-eyed, 120-year-old man. And beside him, standing there, Joshua and Caleb are men of great years. They're very mature. Both in age and in the faith. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. But look around the crowd that is standing there before them on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River. Look at them. Look at their faces. Except for those three men I just mentioned, every other person of their generation lay dead in the wilderness for their stubbornness of heart. Look sometime at Numbers chapter 32 verses 10 and 11. Just a few years earlier when Moses from Kadesh Barnea sent those 12 spies into Canaan and 10 of the 12 came back with a bad report, a faithless, cowardly report. The Lord in his righteous anger swore with an oath saying, surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." And so it came to pass, with the exception of those three faithful men, everyone else of their generation lay dead. So as you look at this crowd standing before them, 600,000 fighting men and more, plus their women, plus their children, gathered there on the plains of Moab. Look at the crowd, and you won't find among them any graybeards. You won't find among them any wrinkly old faces. Except for two bold and faithful men, because Moses, of course, wouldn't be with them. Everyone else that was taking possession of this promised land had been a child or not yet born 40 years ago in the day the Lord brought them out of Egypt. So do the math. Except for these two old men, Joshua and Caleb, not a single person entering into the promised land, after 40 years of wilderness wandering, had yet attained the age of 60. By and large, there are young people, there are vigorous people, there are people still very subject, incidentally, to the sins of youth. There are people still raising children of their own. What I'm getting at is this. Deuteronomy is very much a book for us and for our children. It's about us and our children. It's about us in our own life situations. It's about us facing our own needs as young people. God issues the command to us, forward march into the promised land but not before he shows us which way forward is. It's not democracy. It's not anarchy. It's not everyone doing whatever seems right in his own eyes. Forward takes us out of bondage to yesterday's sin. Takes us out of bondage to those stiff necks and hard hearts that held our fathers captive. Their bones lay behind us in the wilderness. Deuteronomy shows us the way forward. So as he calls this young nation forward into new and very different circumstances from those they had known, those our fathers faced, he refreshes us with this renewal, this remembrance of his law, the renewal of his covenant. Your own eyes, he says, your own eyes have seen my mighty power and provision, For the past 40 years, you've seen it. Now listen to me. As I was with your fathers, I will be with you. Culturally, these are weird and troubling days for the church militant as we sit here perched to all appearances on the very threshold of civilizations collapse. At least you hear a lot about that. At least the end of the world as many of us have known it. Well a similar situation to that that we are in now happened of course 1600 years ago when after a thousand years of cultural dominance the Roman Empire finally crumbled and fell. And the church as a whole had to respond to that epic fall of Rome, the fall of the empire. And St. Augustine, as a contemporary of that dissolution of the empire, Augustine wrote of the church's response to that fall in his book, The City of God. Whenever we find ourselves at a cultural crossroads as we do today. We have a choice. We'll either conform to the weirdness and the insanity of our culture or we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds and we will stand firm in the holiness of Jesus Christ. Beloved, with all my heart, I beseech you today, stand firm Be strong. The crying need of this generation is not to make up new rules to suit us. In order that it may go well with us, God, our maker, redeemer, commander, friend, reminds us of his covenant of grace. He spreads before us the terms of our own life and health and prosperity, the covenant blessings that are earned not by us, but by the obedience of him who kept it with his whole heart, even our Lord Jesus Christ. God, give us the grace to see this Jesus, the Lord of the covenant, on every page of this book. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Father, we thank you so much that you have condescended so far as to send your Son into the world to keep this law that we have so thoroughly and repeatedly and constantly broken and violated. We thank you for the Lord Jesus' love for this book. We thank you that it took up residence in his heart, and he welcomed it. Thank you that he did it, that he fulfilled it to the letter. And thank you that on the basis of that fact, he was qualified, became qualified, as the God-man to be our Savior. So we rest in him, And we look forward eagerly to the study of this book that so drove and motivated him. In his great, glorious name we pray. Amen.